Hey everyone, this is Mary coming to you live right here in July. Happy Leo season to all. Allison and I are taking a little bit of a summer break. You know, it's good for everyone to take a little break and rest and recharge. So we hope you're all doing the same. While we're away, we're gonna bring you some special treats from our Patreon and some other gems. And we're kicking things off in honor of Leo season with a woman who I would say is a Leo, except that she does not recognize time as a concept. So though she has a birth date, which is not in Leo season, her behavior suggests she does live like a Leo every day. I'm speaking, of course, of the one and only Mariah Carey. This is an episode we did on her memoir, The Meaning of Mariah Carey. You might say we put our all into it. I know I definitely had a vision of love when I read this book. I hope you enjoy this episode and you're all having a great summer. We'll see you real soon. Say three nice things about Eminem. <laughs> they come in a package that you can carry wherever you go. Everybody loves them. And they're tasty. Peanut and you can have the regular cup. Welcome everyone to American Girls the Podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. Um, except here on Patreon, where we're basically talking about whatever we think fits within the world of this show. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. And we gather here today to talk about the inimitable, the one and only Miss Mariah Carey. I'm holding this book in my hands like a sacred text. You're holding it very close to you. I'm going to cite the New York Post. Mariah Carey's new book makes it official. We are in the golden age of celebrity memoir. I think that's 100% true. And even in this show, like we've read two very good ones on Patreon so far. I really do think Jessica Simpson's was very good. And I didn't think any could top that for me. And then I read this book. And I think this is a really, really excellent memoir. This book is longer than our usual Patreon pick because it's for adults. Though mm-hmm. so it's not YA. Um, it was a little bit longer than I thought. I enjoyed it much more than I thought. I'm going to try to make it into her family group. Like I know Moroccan and, and Monroe have a pretty good life. So I kind of wonder if she would adopt me. Well, you know what, Allison? We in the Lamely, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I am a member of the Lamely long time. But, you know, we have a pretty good life, even though I have not yet made it onto her Aspen Christmas list. You know, I would love to catch that invite if possible. Yeah, I think we're going to talk a bit about her also because we're releasing this around the holidays, her relationship to the holidays, which is really interesting. Um, Something that was a challenge for me is this book. Mariah knows where she stands in Western civilization. She's like, I will be citing the Bible and my own lyrics. That's it. What more does she possibly need? Although I will say, just to jump into it, that Michaela Angela Davis as her co-writer, ghostwriter, except she is credited on the cover, which I enjoy because a lot of celebrity memoirs just like low-key hire a ghostwriter who never gets any credit because they sign an NDA, which, you know, God bless. Um, Like BJ Novak's dad was a, is a infamous celebrity memoir ghostwriter. Um, Okay. Okay. Sorry. Can we talk, can we talk about that? How much is that BJ Novak's parentage of children of another certain celebrity? I'm not going to name names so we don't get sued. He's a ghost father of those children. You know who I'm talking about. She well, is a memoir you know, author as well. 
You Those know, are his children. I mean, you know, I would love to perhaps do a deep dive into his social media. I don't have the time to see, you know, does he have <laughs> any, does he also share an affinity for Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy? Because I've read that a certain person was inspired to name her children after those golden age of Hollywood stars. So, I mean, is that one way in to kind of do a sort of paternity test through social media affiliation? I don't know. I would love to know. I also don't want to get sued because I'll be frank, we don't have that kind of cash on hand, Allison. We can't defend ourselves. So there was an an interview that this famous person recently conducted where she was talking about her children. There Mm -hmm. are now two. And when she mentioned BJ Novak, she paused and said, their godfather. Right. Because that was the relationship that she was comfortable divulging. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, but but I agree that it. you might say it's a pregnant pause. Um, <laughs> yeah. But when celebrities hide or conceal purposefully the the parentage, um, sometimes it's so left field, I can't predict it. And I will just say, like, Melissa Etheridge having David Crosby be the father of her children, I will never recover from that because it's like I could not have predicted that less. Again, I'm not a Melissa Etheridge stan. Like, I feel like that's not my generation. But, like, I so I don't really know a ton about her. But it's like, would anyone predict that? No. No. All I'm thinking of, I was just like, you know, come to my window, you know, with the sample. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Maybe. But it's like, but it's like this particular example feels so obvious to me. It's kind of like we were both watching Bridgerton the past few days and I finished it ahead of you. But you, I basically was like, do you want to know who Lady Whistleton or whatever her name is, is? And I was making you guess. And then you were like, well, who is it this person? I was like, yes. And I think you were sort of shocked that I actually told you the big reveal, but to me it was like for both of us it seemed too obvious for it to be this person and then it was that person and that's how i feel about this i have been watching and i do actually think this relates a lot to mariah carey because in that world there are a lot of biracial people and there are ways in which like race completely is not talked about and doesn't seem to matter and then there's all these other ways in bridgerton that race does matter and it's kind of a confusing mix for the viewer because I think that's something that's different from the original text. Is that right? It is different from what I've been given to understand. I have not read these books, full disclosure, but to me, it's sort of in conversation too with Hamilton, where it's like, Mm. how do we place people of color in the past in roles that they would not have otherwise played or were allowed to play? Do we acknowledge that fourth wall? Like Hamilton just does not acknowledge it. It's sort of like the casting is an argument or an attempt at a reinvention or reinterpretation or sort of like a radical, you know, speaking back to this history or the ways that we've talked about American history or limited it to certain people, kinds of people. Whereas in Bridgerton, there's like one throwaway line that's like, well, the king fell in love with a black woman and made her queen. So that sort of radically equalized or erased any racial tensions in the British Empire. And then he went mad. So let's hope that he doesn't turn against his own wife because then that could have larger implications. And then it's literally never spoken of again. So it's like, here's this explanatory reason why we have people of color in very noble or elite or rich positions um, and in which their race is never acknowledged, really. It's very strange. But it's Shondaland. And I think if we had to choose between 
the British Empire as it actually was or a Shondaland Empire, we would all pick the latter. 100%. Or most people would pick the latter. 100%. I think it's both an attempt at a radical rewrite of history within Shondaland. But as I said to you, I also think Shonda, the real radical nature of it is like the explicit discussion and display of heterosex. There's some gay sex, but it's very limited. Because I imagine if you were a teen on Netflix and you stumbled into this, like you would actually, if you were raised in a very conservative home as I was, you would actually learn a lot about how sex works and, you know, like what is in a 100% effective birth control method, for example. Um, so I thought that part was interesting. Yeah, I agree. I, I've also seen some discussion. I would encourage people to check this out. There's British scholars who are talking about the real Queen Charlotte and her involvement in the slave trade and kind of like what this series does to to change it because people upon watching Bridgerton have said, how come I, I didn't know about Queen Charlotte? Or I think it is very similar to the Hamilton effect where it's like people who actually were enslavers or involved in the slave trade when their race has changed for the sake of a show or a presentation. A lot of people may never get all their history. Like they may take yes. this as history. And I think that's part of why I, I know there was significant backlash for this, but the crown is not true to history. It's it's a representation. It doesn't right. mean it's the full story. So I know people were mad at the royals and we can kind of see through why it took this season for them to react when they said like the representations of Diana are a fiction, it doesn't mean it's all true. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think you kind of have to look, and this is sort of like my own vision of history, which is like all history is a fiction. Like we are all creating narratives about the past that will never be a one-to-one -one true representation of what happened because depending on how you view archives, like can we ever know the full truth of the past? Yes or no. We can know a lot of it from depending on how much of the archive is available. But you're absolutely right. Like with The Crown, I engage that as historical fiction. To engage it as yeah. anything else, I think is a mistake. It's that person's interpretation of what happened with the royal family based on God knows what archives he's drawing on. But, you know, as The Guardian said, the royal family doesn't need the crown to make it look bad. Like it does it on its own. So. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Mary here again to tell you about the magic of Magic Spoon. If you're competing in the Olympics or you aspire to someday, as I still do as an almost 35 year old woman, you might be hoping for an event at which you might be competitive. And for me, that's cereal eating. So Magic Spoon has been a big help in what you might call my training. It has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving, has only 140 calories, it's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Those all sound like qualities that might matter to an actual Olympian. What I care about is that in the variety pack, you can pull from any number of flavors, including cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. And as I've said before, the key is mixing those flavors because that's when things get pushed to 11, so to speak. So if you want to check this out, go to magicspoon.com slash American Girls Pod to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code American Girls Pod at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. 
Remember, get your next delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash americangirlspod and use the code americangirlspod to save $5 off. So I think along with Hegel, Heidegger, you know, all these, you know, William Morris, all these different people who make you rethink concepts of time. Mariah was asked bluntly, what is your birthday? Correct. And she won't answer. Like she does not believe in, I think, a linear Western notion of time. And she presents this argument that she basically just appeared. And I thought, okay, but someone must know. If you go on her Wikipedia page, there's like eight citations just for her birth date of conflicting information. I think that's amazing and powerful. And, you know, I think we kind of need to start there because <laughs> her relationship with her own birth date and ch- and like the imagined age that she is, is like a trope that keeps coming up in her sort of meta narrative. And I think, let me just say first, I am a fan of Mariah Carey. Like I'm a deep fan. So it's very difficult really? for me. No, people don't know this about me, Allison. I'm just like revealing this. Like, yes, I'm recording in my closet yet again. And like, here I am coming out yet again (laughs) as a Mariah Carey fan. But I like to be called Mimi in my family and by some friends, not Allison, because I revealed this information too late and she was too used to calling me Mary. But um, so to know another prominent Mimi out there who's not a grandma, although shout out to all grandmas who go by Mimi, was inspiring. But also, I think something that's interesting is she claims her age is 12. Like, in a lot of interviews, she either says, I don't have a birth date or I'm 12. And I think her own, she is someone who is very skilled at shaping her own narrative and has continually reshaped it throughout her life at various points as part of her own PR. So I think to start with her childhood and thinking about why certain things continue to be important to her now and how that relates to her childhood is an interesting place to begin. Like she's known now as like the queen of Christmas air quotes, which actually I like to push against because yes, all I want for Christmas is you is let's say the greatest Christmas song of all time. I won't be accepting feedback on that, but I believe it to be true. (laughs) Um, And she, you know, has posted all these discs saying like it's the most globally streamed song in the world and all of this stuff. But I think that actually obscures like the range of her, the rest of her catalog and her skill as a songwriter. So I do want to just like press pause on that for a second. But, you know, her childhood has been was extremely tough and I think explains in part why Christmas is so important to her now like why she embraces being 12 years old because when she was 12 her life was incredibly traumatic so I think much of her adulthood and her free time has been about reclaiming and reliving like an adolescence that she didn't have not to be like a therapist. No, I, I think she's aware of that to a large extent. I think that's a big part of what this book is about. It's not just a retelling of her childhood but Mariah was born to Alfred Roy and Pat Carey sometime in the Aries season. We do know that pretty definitively, which I think also makes a great argument for how she would have fit into the American girl universe because Mm. so many of them are part of the Aries or or Taurus part of the year. Something that actually had a really kind of interesting resonance with me was you know, she says in some interviews, I don't have a birthday or I'm oblivious to age. Her birthday happens to fall right around Easter, Hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting because I had a grandmother who would claim that that was her birthday as well. Like Hmm. she would claim that holidays were her birthday. And I think it's, it might be hard for some people now, not everyone to imagine 
like the particulars of a lot of people's actual birth date were either not known to them or obscured to them. Like we've mm. talked about this with Addie and Frederick Douglass, like the the power of of claiming a date for yourself. I think for her, there's power in not making the day that she entered the world to those particular parents the day that defines her. Because I yes. think not necessarily in a born again way. I think that her faith has always been with her. I think she, like you're saying, around the age of 12, like started herself over. Like, I I think like important events in her life and then moving to New York and figuring out who she was, like that's her birth, not whatever day she was born to these people. I totally agree with that. And I also think not having a year is really important to her because if you don't have a year, you can't outgrow, air quotes, like the shelf life of a diva, so to speak. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. when she came of age professionally, it was at the same time, a little bit later perhaps, but about the same time as Janet Jackson, Paula Abdul, Sheila E. question mark, like a lot of (laughs) A lot of singers and Madonna, which is, you know, a quick sidebar, Mariah Carey claims that she's never met Madonna and like refuses to speak on what she makes of her vocal talents such as they are. But, um, you know, where there's so much pressure on women in particular not to age out of um, being young and desirable. Like if you think Mm -hmm. about Prince, who kind of was on a parallel track with Mariah Carey, came of age a little bit. He's a little bit older, came of age a little bit younger. No one ever said of Prince like, "Ooh, he's getting a little old to be doing this. But I think Mariah Carey has often felt that pressure and also like had this sort of you know, I don't want to know if you want to jump into this yet, because I think her childhood is still worth kind of talking about her origins a little bit. But her marriage sort of froze her in a sort of adolescence before she could even in the same way that women like experiment with their appearance and think about themselves as an object of sexual desire. Like she didn't really do that until she left her first marriage. So like yeah. she has a weird life cycle thing happening where it's like she doesn't actually do the thing that some women do in their 20s until she's in her 30s. Yeah. And I think we should definitely talk about her childhood because I will say um, almost everyone, it seems like who's read this book and it's only been out about two months, really appreciated it. Um, One Brave Soul said it was um, a book of bragging like a Dr. Seuss poem, which I don't agree with. Um, And there are people who question how much she wrote and there's been some people who say like there's not a ton of details on actual events that happened in her life and I don't think that's true I think this book is a very smart and selective portrayal of moments that matter to her right like she's not claiming that she's telling you every single thing um like this one reviewer says there's very little details there's few events about her life um a ton of life events known to the public were absent. I think these are the things that matter to her and it's not of interest to her to give you a catalog. Well, and I think that kind of gets at what is the role of a memoir or an autobiography? Is it to give you yeah. a timeline of major events in your life or is it perhaps to have you kind of stop and pause and meditate on anecdotes that are telling in some deeper way about, you know, feelings or definitive chapters in your life? I appreciate her approach more because it's sort of like her retelling of things that were formative to her or meaningful to her. 
you know, I don't need cert- I don't need like an accounting of everything in her life because, you know, as a fan, I'm pretty familiar with like major events in her life. I know nothing about how she feels about it or what she thinks matters from all of that. So I kind of approach the book thinking like, OK, w- why does she talk about and why does that matter? Yeah. And I think a great example of that is one of the opening chapters has this anecdote about how she is asked to draw her family and to pick from the box of crayons. And she's choosing colors for her family, which is a biracial family. Her father is black. Her mother is white. And she is trying to make sense of that. Um, And it's like, obviously, I think the person she worked with is brilliant. Michaela Angela Davis, like probably did a great job of saying like, this is a good example, right? Like you need to work with this. And so she's pulling out the crayons and the teachers are laughing at her and saying, you didn't choose the right colors. And they weren't fully aware of her background or her ancestry. And this leaves like a huge imprint on Mariah of people telling her, literally you're wrong. Like you don't understand your own family. And I think she does that through a few examples, like the moments where she realizes she's being sort of socialized to hate her own hair because no one knows how to help her with it. I think if she had gone too far down the road of how difficult her childhood was in certain pockets, I think people would have unfairly been very unkind about that because her life does become so good afterwards. Mm. I think, again, unfairly, I think people would have criticized her for focusing on that. I think she tells you enough. You get it. Yeah, I think you get it. And I do think that there is an unfairness in terms of like, again, what women as musicians or artists are allowed to kind of linger on in their own life stories in ways that like mostly male critics find like totally attractive when men do it. So like, I'm also a Beatles fan, like won't even get into that. But (laughs) most most writing on the Beatles drives me absolutely insane because it's almost entirely by men. Um, But they cannot get enough of John Lennon's childhood trauma. Like his mother was killed Mm -hmm. in a car accident when he was 17. It becomes this defining event in his life. And all these songs end up being about that. And he basically acts like a jerk towards women. And people are like, but what you don't understand is that his mom died. Like, this is what people will say about him. And it's like a meaning making um, mechanism in his life story. And I think with Mariah, it's like she's trying to present to you why it is that I think critics and fans really unfairly charged her with trying to, like, in what was read as a fake way, like, enter the hip hop Mm. scene in the 90s and 2000s after she divorces Tommy Mottola, which was initially by some read as like, hey, you're not a hip hop artist. Like, you're not black. And but I think here she's saying like, look, from my childhood, people have been charging me with this. And I've been trying to navigate like fitting in both worlds. Like the fact that her mother decides to take just her to Chicago to visit her mother from whom she's been estranged because this woman is extremely racist and disapproved of her marriage to a black man. She only takes Mariah because Mariah is like her lightest skinned child. She has two other children who are darker skinned. So Mariah feels like distance from them because they have a different experience and they're judgmental of her. Then she goes to meet this grandmother who also ends up sort of being judgmental of her. So it's like, I don't fit comfortably in any world. And I've been navigating Mm -hmm. this since I was a child. So I think like 
you're right. Like it's that would be an unfair criticism, but I think like that's why she's doing it in part. The pacing is good too. Like we spend some time with her as a younger person, and then you learn there's kind of seeds planted that she is a great singer, but her mother very much puts her down and says, you know, you're not as good as I am, or, or there's kind of all of this conflict. And I think what's interesting is she does a very good job, I think, of explaining her journey to the city and just absolutely knowing that she was a good singer, like just absolutely having that confidence, being willing to work really bad jobs. And I think something I appreciated about both her and Jessica Simpson is you realize the gravity of these moments where they get into big rooms or they get to hand the right person a demo. It's like they know they have it, but they also know they're on the precipice of being totally taken advantage of. It's like, you know, like, you know, you have the goods, but they also know just enough to know, like, I'm about to really be taken for a ride. Yeah. I mean, Carrie is like the ultimate example. That to me was a big surprise of this book was learning that I forget the guy's name now and I'm not looking up because I don't respect him. But the person with whom she recorded some demos of songs she wrote and because he helped her record the demos in like a backroom studio he ended up getting a piece of all of her publishing for like her first five albums or something insane. And he had nothing to do with them. And it was because she knew nothing about how the business really worked. She knew her own talent, as you're saying, but she didn't know like how to protect herself. And even in that party, there's this like crazy scene where she goes with a friend um, to a party and Tommy Mottola is there. It's the first time she meets him. And she knows if she can get him to listen to her demo he will sign her. But I think she also knows he's mainly into her because he thinks she's hot. Yes. So it's like she has to navigate, like, how much do I really want a record contract? Am I willing to engage this guy who pretty much like just wants me because he's attracted to me and like maybe he'll entertain my talent. And she then has no idea like how controlling he's going to be of like both parts of her life. No. And I think in, in a way, again, that feels very authentic to her. She talks about the difference between like being happy with having her own place and finally being able to buy a couch. And she gets this this $5,000 payment at one point for something that she's done and like the real joy that she feels from that and then kind of evolving. And when she buys the house with Tommy Matola, she puts a lot of her own money into it. And she also realizes like she has a flair for design. And I think something that's kind of interesting about her And I know I've mentioned this before, but I really like Tara Westover's autobiography. People kind of learning like she never really thought she'd have access to that world to learn that she's good at something. Yes. She's like, oh, I actually like really have a flair for this. I really, you know, whatever you think of it personally, thinking of like Mariah's Christmas special, she has an eye. Maybe you don't like it. Or her iconic episode of Cribs. Did you ever see her episode of Cribs over her penthouse? I love Cribs. Her Moroccan room, which then goes on to inspire the name of one of her children, which it's like, you know, who else would be brave to, you know, design an entire (laughs) room to look like a Moroccan lounge? Like, that's a choice, you know, and it's her choice. But I think you're right, like that she does have she knows her own mind and she and it comes out in like her choices musically as a songwriter but also aesthetically, like as a designer, and you're right, it's like she never knew that she had that kind of, I guess, talent. Now, I'm curious what you thought of this. I found, because I just know this is who I am as a person, I found the insertion of lyrics throughout 
completely distracting because I have a hard time switching from narrative to lyric because I don't feel as though I'm trained to read a lyric in a smart way. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't know if that's true. I think you're trained to read it in a smart way, like as a text. I kind of read it as Mariah saying, look, this is my autobiography, but this has been here. Like my autobiography has been in front of you Mm. the entire time. It's in the lyrics. Like, for example, when she comes to New York for the first time, (laughs) when she moves there, she literally owns one pair of shoes and there's a hole in it. Cut to the song Make It Happen, which has the line. Not even shoes upon my feet. Sometimes I couldn't even eat. And it's like, that's literally true. That was literally her experience. I thought that was just sort of hyperbole in that song when I heard it. And then you read this book and you're like, no, she literally had one pair of boots and like ground a hole in them and whatever. So to me, it's like, I think it's really important for her. For The stakes for her are to show that her that she is a good songwriter and that her songs are deeply personal. So yes. she has to make that connection. So it's like, let me start off by you know, telling you, you know, quote from like this song. And a lot of the songs, interestingly, are not her best known songs. So I think it's also a way of saying like, hey, check out my deeper catalog here. I'm deep. Oh, I I agree. I think that's part of why I was expecting to recognize more of the content and a lot of it I had never heard of. It was interesting, though, to think of. I remember very, very well. My sister had the tape and then the CD of Music Box. And like, I can picture that like it was yesterday. And I also think, because I always think of this, you know, our girl Karen Carpenter, rest in peace. Oh my God, She didn't get to live, you know, the life. Um, But I always think of certain albums, certain records, like these people, they have a voice that I know just enough to know. The range is just not like anyone else. And I think it was cool to hear her talk about that, like the way that she understands from a very young age, like she has lyrical talent. She's also kind of weird. Like she makes a lot of weird jokes. You kind of (laughs) learn through this book, like she's quirky in a way that makes sense, but I wasn't expecting, but also to just know, I think there, there are things you can train. We've talked about this before. I don't think you can necessarily train everyone up to where she and probably 30 other singers are I don't you're just not gonna you do just it. can't do it and I think where you kind of see that come out in the book is that she has a deep appreciation for and affinity for background singers um mm. when she's just starting out she gets a couple gigs as a backup singer in different session recordings and literally like these are her heroes like she shows up at the session at one point and she's like oh my god i can't believe i'm singing with like this person because she's read the liner notes of all her favorite albums and she knows like who are the backup singers that are really really talented at like fitting themselves in the mix and harmonizing and i think that's where her deep talent or knowledge of music comes through it's like She's not just good by herself. She's a very good arranger. And there's a clip, Mm -hmm. I'll find it and I'll put it in, of when literally during a live television performance, she's singing. This is like early in her career and she's like singing around and she gives like a death glare at one of her own backup singers. And it's like, okay, this person's not hitting the right note. Then because they don't get it from her look, she's literally like, one of you isn't hitting the right note. Like during the song. The spirits of the past. Somebody's doing the wrong note. She has a very rare talent where she's incredibly good, 
but she can also arrange people around her to support her mm. in the best way possible. What do you think surprised you the most about her story? Like a lot of this surprised me because I didn't know it. <laughs> so I okay. had a lot of surprises. This is the biggest surprise. Well, first I'll say a minor surprise, and this relates to the album you just cited, Music Box. I didn't realize that that was a nickname for Phil Spector. Phil Spector used for his wife, Ronnie Spector, who was the lead singer of the Ronettes, who is an iconic musician. If you're into 60s girl group music, Phil Spector is an iconic weirdo, psychopath, convicted <laughs> murderer in jail. Yeah. I don't know why I'm um, laughing. Well, it's fine. If you've seen a, his um, headshot or um, his mugshot, you would be laughing because it's insane. His wig work is unparalleled. Um, but he called her music box. And like the fact that Mariah Carey knew that and named her in some ways most successful album music box when that was the nickname of an abuser for his like ingenue who he exploited. And she named her album that when Tommy Mottola was producing her and controlling her life is like an incredible lack of self-awareness, but also that weird sense of humor that you're noting. Okay, <laughs> the most surprising thing in this book, Derek Jeter. Yes. The Derek Jeter yes. of it all. I was like staring into space. I was like, wait a second, because My All is, an, <laughs> is a great song, first of all. My All is an incredible song. The Roof, also a good song. My All is better. Anyway, the fact that both of those were inspired by Derek Jeter, Allison. That surprised me because I think I've talked about this before. When I did tours that involved the Vanderbilts, I would say to people, something is not something is not balanced if you have a hundred million dollars and you say, but I need 200. Right. Something something is 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 missing there. There's other elements at play. I think what the reason why athletes and superstars, it's like their body is their thing, right? Like, and they know they have talent and everyone else knows it and they know they're at their peak. And I think Derek gave her a family that she desperately wanted. Like she wanted to be kind of like cool aunt and kind of be in the mix. Um, interestingly enough, I can't verify this a hundred percent, but I do feel pretty good about it. So this could go into my you know, like memoir. So she marries Tommy Mottola in the 90s. And then he famously remarries. And I was putting a timeline together. I was in New York City one winter with uh, my family and a friend. And we were in front of a massive cathedral. And there were just crushing crowds. And someone said, oh, it's a Sony exec getting married. And oh we were God. almost like crushed with the people. I am choosing to believe, based on some research I did into family photos and Tommy Mottola's life, that it was wow. Tommy Mottola. Honestly, how could you do that to Mariah, Allison? Well, I wasn't I wasn't invited. I was just kind of passing just, by. You were part of the scene. Appreciated the way she both explained what went wrong with Glitter, but also still owned it as a thing that she thinks has potential <laughs> because... I see a lot of myself in that. Like we've all been involved in something that really didn't go well. Like it didn't go the way that we thought. Sure. But we could kind of dissect and understand why. Now that I actually know her life story, I understand why she was so invested in that going well and why Sony and Tommy Mottola absolutely torpedoed it because it was her story. They never wanted that to be good. I need to speak on this because I feel very passionately about this, Allison, as you know. Okay. All right. 
So Justice for Glitter, the social media campaign, was like started a year ago to restore glitter to its place, you know, in the Pantheon, okay? Now, listen, did I force select friends to watch Glitter with me for my birthday this year? Yes. That was the first time I've sat through that movie in some years. You know, was it a tough watch? Yes. It was a tough watch, okay? Like, and But here's what my reading of that film is that it probably started with a much better script, which is what she kind of says, which is like, I had this idea for a movie and then it went through so many different iterations and I was constrained by the studio and this and that all these people putting in their two cents, that the story became something else. And the part that's troubling about the movie plot is it ends up that, like, she's in love with her own abuser, basically, or, like, that's my Mm -hmm. reading of the plot that I find the most problematic. There's other things that just, like, don't make sense. And, you know, that's... It is what it is. That soundtrack is is still amazing. I'm just going to say that. The music of Glitter is the part of the movie that lives on that I can stand. Um, I just want to say that, like... Glitter, that part of the book was really hard to read because you can just imagine yourself into her shoes where she's leaving a marriage that was very abusive to her emotionally and, you know, otherwise. When she leaves him, he has so much power that he can he can flex his privilege by not only showing his resources, but using his resources to constrain hers and limit the choices she can make professionally. So even telling her life story, like, he's able to limit that. Then... Other men come onto the scene and further limit or try to rewrite the narrative of her as an independent woman as, like, she's crazy. And this is why we have this narrative of, like, Mariah had a breakdown on TRL. And I don't even think I want to play the clip. I do have the clip. But it's like, I don't want to give this individual airtime on this program. (laughs) I Carson Daly is on my personal hit list because... He acted so freaked out, Allison. Yeah. No, he, he acted so freaked out. Literally, Mariah Carey was just trying to do a surprise walk-on, which if you watch TRL, you know, like, so many celebrities did this, where they were like, oh, hi, I was just in the area, like, also here to plug my project. She was trying to do that. Admittedly, she wore a Loverboy t-shirt and whipped it off as, like, to show the t-shirt and had an outfit on underneath and was trying to give away ice cream. And Carson reacted as if, I don't even know what. Like, imagine the craziest thing a person could do. He was like, oh, my God, I didn't know you were going to be here. What is happening? Oh, my God, what are you doing? Oh, my God, you're taking your shirt off. Oh, my God. And it's like nothing she was doing was crazy. Nothing. But he played it that way. And all these, and Tommy Mottola constrained her choices. Also putting JLo on this list, Allison, like she contributed to this. She did. And I think I went back and I watched the clip of her being on TRL and the way that Carson Daly, I think what was interesting, because we've learned about him now from several sources. And I think part of it is like when he decided that he wasn't going to play, that was kind of the only power he had. Because, you know, because when you said hit list, what you mean is like, he's a hit maker. So he's on that list for you for legal reasons. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. I understand what you're saying. he deals with all of these hit makers. And I think like, what's his talent, right? His talent is kind of pulling things out of these performers. And unlike an Oprah or unlike someone who's really an excellent interviewer, he's kind of an MC, which is also a talent. But I think the only real power he has in those moments is to humiliate them by stop playing along. He did this to Britney Spears. Yep. He would do this to the boy bands. It's his only power. I think that's why he did it to people like Jessica Simpson. 
I think he mostly targeted women, though. Like, there was also another notable time when Christina yeah. Aguilera came by. He wasn't there that day. Someone else was filling in. And she basically just left him a note that was like, hey, Carson, sorry I missed you. That Her manager probably told her to write, okay? Nothing salacious. He made the point of, like, talking about this on the show, and he inflated it to seem as if, like, she was interested in him or he probably, like, fueled some rumor that there was something going on between them. So that then he could bring her on again when he was there and be like, guys, there's a rumor going around and like, I really need people to stop talking about Christina this way. And he's like wagging his one painted black fingernail at the camera like, (laughs) guys. And so he can be like this savior when it's like, no, actually, you're participating in demeaning this and many other like female starlets at a time when it's sort of like taken as a matter of course that this is okay. And I think you're right. Like the power to embarrass is his power. And I think he thought he was like the Dick Clark of his time, which he kind of was. We didn't know that Ryan Seacrest was going to come along and sort of like truly take that mantle on. But (laughs) I mean, I just found that part really shocking because it's like I remember watching TRL and watching that happen and not really understanding what was going on because you don't have the context that she gives you in this book of all the behind the scenes machinations. But You know, it's just like the number of people who participated in the narrative of like she's crazy because it was profitable to them in some way, like either in a kind of the form of personal capital for Carson and Tommy Matola or J-Lo in the form of getting the mix for the beat for what would become I'm Real, which you learn in the book that sample was something Mariah Carey chose initially to use for Loverboy. And then Tommy Matola passes it to J-Lo who immediately puts out I'm Real using that sample, which blocks Mariah from using it, which I think ultimately was for the best because I've heard both versions and I like the one that's on the album better. But I just want to read this quote when she talks in the book about J-Lo, who famously she said, I don't know her. This is how she refers to that incident in the book. Quote, I had chosen Firecracker by Yellow Magic Orchestra as the sample, which did not go unnoticed by Sony executives and spies. Sony gave her idea to, quote, another female entertainer on their label whom I don't know. And what I respect about this is, like, don't name your enemies. Like, honestly, that's the power. It's like the punch she doesn't have to throw is, like, she doesn't actually have to name J-Lo for us to know that that's who she's talking about. Do you know J-Lo at this point? The audience member said it. She also has a note. And honestly, I, I do give a lot of credit. I think what, whatever the percentage of Mariah and her co-author, however that worked out, pretty well written. And it's very much like with language of the times. Um, she talks about how people imagined that A-Rod, who had a crush on her and basically orchestrated seeing her in some way, like there was this whole narrative that he stole her from Tommy Matola. And she writes in the book, he didn't steal me from Tommy. I liberated myself. Yes. Which is like very fascinating because I I genuinely, I remember watching her music videos on television. And I remember the music video that tells her parents love story and the sunflowers. Like I remember all these things very vividly. But I also think when you get to kind of revisit these people as an older person, I really didn't take the emancipation of Mimi seriously at all. I was like, oh, this is so like silly, right? Like this is like this very kind of like, I wouldn't have called it camp, but this is kind of this camp moment of this rich lady, this music, you know, this music person who's kind of breaking away from her husband. 
And then you understand that he basically did imprison her. Like she couldn't go anywhere. She, you know, when you hear that when you're younger, you don't know her full backstory. So you don't really understand that she really did have to free herself. Yeah, 100 percent. And I mean, that scene, the iconic scene where she flees her mansion to get French fries at Burger King with Debrat and eating them in the car. And she has like this gleeful, like almost teenage rebellion of like, I escaped. Like we're doing this very everyday basic thing. But to her, it's like she treasures <laughs> this moment away from the gaze of her husband. And and I think like the music becomes really liberating and emancipatory like in response to her actually finally leaving Tommy Matola, like if you listen to Butterfly, if you listen to The Emancipation of Mimi, like Butterfly, the video, the track, that whole album, mm -hmm. like all of these things, like it shows her self-liberating, like she is doing it. She's the one who's empowered. And I think that's when she stops sort of, even though she has like far more economic power in her family and all these things that's when she draws a line in the sand and is like i'm not engaging with you anymore like particularly to her mother who's been like a very kind of toxic influence in her life and she has a brother and sister whom she refers to as ex-brother and ex-sister in the book so i mean there's a lot of like really traumatic things where she kind of has to stand in her own power and i think a lot of people read her diva behavior as like the largesse that comes with being very rich, very famous for a very long time. But I think it's probably mm. a response too psychologically to not being taken seriously. So like, as we've discussed, when all the stuff happened with her air quotes breakdown, she was incredibly rich, incredibly successful. And yet this still happened to her. It was so easy to discredit her. And I think she's very aware of that. And that's why she has such an insistence on kind of controlling her own narrative and of demanding a certain level of respect because I think she's positioning herself in a longer line of female singers who have not necessarily had that respect. Like, can you think of a female singer who has had that level of respect and success for decades of their career? She puts herself in the same league as Aretha Franklin, although she defers to Aretha Franklin in the scenes about Divas Live when she's talking about participating <laughs> in that, which I loved, where she was like basically calling out Celine Dion for trying to like yes. work with Aretha and was like, that was completely inappropriate, which it was. And I say this as a Celine fan, but it's like, that was not the move. Um, but I think she sees like, it's so rare to actually stay in this and be respected as a woman for decades like she was just inducted into the songwriters hall of fame like a year or two ago like that's crazy how you're reminding me of a novel that i recently read it came out i think this year or the last and i really loved it and it was the seven and a half husbands of evelyn hugo oh, or the seven husbands yes, of evelyn i love that hugo. book too and I really loved it because you go in thinking like, oh, this is this is the framework that defines this woman. And then it's her telling her story to a younger person who's writing it into a memoir. And part of what I really liked about it was like having this kind of dialogue between a person saying like, this is how I want you to tell my story. And she was kind of old age Hollywood and was like famous for having all these failed marriages and famous for like all her relationships to people. And it turned out like you didn't really know the truth of any of it. Like almost everything you thought you knew wasn't true. And Mariah Carey says at one point, and I thought, wow, it really floored me. She says, I didn't have a breakdown. I was broken down by other people. Yeah. And she explains that they weren't letting her sleep. They weren't letting her rest. They weren't letting her have access to these basic things. And I think even in the framework of Jessica Simpson, starting with her kind of attempts to hide her 
issues with substance abuse and, and her addiction to alcohol. She starts with saying, like, I had all these coping mechanisms and I had all these things and they just stopped working. And I think Mariah hits a kind of crisis point. And instead of having people around you who say like, hey, wait, wait a minute, what, what are we going to do to fix this? The people in Mariah's life are like, well, she's crazy and we're not going to deal with it. Yeah. And, and also it, like she's a blank check and like we yeah. can't let her rest because then where's the money going to come from? You search that period and it comes up. I was very curious because I hadn't remembered that incident. You search at different websites and it's like, here's all the proof that Mariah Carey is bipolar. Here's the proof that she's this. Here's the proof. And you think of it like it's always been so easy to just say, well, she's crazy. So we don't have to we don't have to look any further. She's crazy. And Carson Daly does the same thing. She's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And and when does that become? I think that's interesting, too, because she doesn't discuss that diagnosis in this book at all. Um, no. And she had in People magazine in like a feature a couple of years ago, I think. But she basically doesn't go there because I think she's aware that there's a trajectory where as long as you have a mental health diagnosis, we all have different identities that we all carry simultaneously at the same time. And yet in memoir culture, if you introduce a mental health diagnosis, suddenly the entire book will be classed as like a mental health memoir, um, unfairly or not. And I think she doesn't want to step into that realm, but also is speaking back to this penchant to label women whose behavior is independent or, you know, self-realized as air quotes crazy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of one of the greatest contributions of this book. I also think it's telling that she made a secret grunge album, which I didn't know as a fan <laughs> and now would love to hear. But that that she says um, about that experience um, in 1995, I think she did this quote. Um, she made an album with a group called Chick, which you, their stuff is not on Spotify. You can find some of it on YouTube. Quote, they could be angry, um, angsty and messy with old shoes, wrinkled slips and unruly eyebrows. While every mood, every move I made was so calculated and manicured. So mm -hmm. also kind of even within sort of acceptable presentations of what it means to be a woman, you know, the grunge movement um, and rock and certain and which definitely was a genre that privileged whiteness as well, would sort of make space for these like non-traditional appearances of women who were purposefully unkept, as she's saying, or messy. Um, and that even that was liberating to step into this other way of being a woman in public. But of course, it was all secret, although she wanted to release the album, but Tommy Mottola wouldn't allow her to, which is interesting. No, you learned that he's actually very conservative. And again, to your previous point, people were very critical of her stepping more into the R&B world and having these different relationships with artists. And she, I mean, I think presents a pretty clear paper trail that that was something that was of interest to her that she was doing and wanted to do more during her marriage to Tommy Mottola. And he stopped it. And I, I don't know that she goes so far as to say that he was doing it because he was racist, but I think it's certainly implied. I think it's implied and I think it's probably like justified because she plays at one point the remix. So like the moment for her that's foundational in this shift is mm -hmm. she does a remix with ODB to um, Fantasy and he listens to it and he's basically like, this is crap. Like, I don't get this. 
And she says that the divide between them was not so much an age divide as like a taste divide, which is another way of also signaling like the importance of race and their differences. And that he was so easily denigrating like the things that she valued that were valued within hip hop, um, dismissing them out of hand. So I think, you know, I think that's an interesting piece to their divorce that also doesn't get talked about. And I just end up like really feeling for her because another clip you'll find if you look on YouTube is of when she's on the Rosie O'Donnell show after her divorce. And Rosie's like, well, you're dressing like kind of like skimpy now, like you should, you know, Mm -hmm. make those skirts a little longer. And it's like women shaming other women for what they do with their bodies, which is like completely unnecessary and uncalled for. So it's like she couldn't fit comfortably in any camp because even black magazines interviewing her were sort of like, well, you're white. Right. And you know what I mean? So it's like the stuff from childhood coming back. Like how was she supposed to relaunch herself if she couldn't fit comfortably into like any one genre or market? I think bizarrely and the timelines don't exactly line up, but they're very similar. When Jessica Simpson puts on the Daisy Duke shorts for Dukes of Hazard, and then people say to her, once you put those on culturally, you will never take them off. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways like that, kind of has resonance with Mariah Carey because she was very into like the tied up top and the short shorts for a while. Like that was very much part of her look and part of her crossover into other cultural spaces. And I think there are people for whom it's like, she has that moment and she has the moment where she, um, you know, like her Christmas moment or her queen of Christmas. And more of what the book is about is like times where she felt elegant or times where she felt like she was able to really like show her taste in fashion. So it is interesting. Like I think Jessica was on to something with like, once you put them on, you'll always yeah. be associated with that. And I, I think something too, that's like attention in this book is like what happens when the outer world tries to impose this narrative on you based on the clothing you wear or the music you put out or the person you're married to or whatever it is, how do you speak back to that? Like, how do you reclaim the Uh narrative of your life? And I think what she talks about in the book is the ways that she took control of her music and was trying to put out content that matched like her own tastes and her own experiences and sort of not trying to take it personally if things were not as big a hit as she'd hoped. Um, but something that's not talked about in the book is her reality show, which I know like you laugh about because I say it's like I talk about it too much. But like <laughs> it's a really fascinating kind of document of a really specific time in her life that does not get talked about probably for good reason, because the manager that she worked with at the time she has since fired and has since sued her for sexual harassment, <laughs> which is like insane. Oh. But whatever. Yeah, I don't I think like they were both like playing each other. But the show is like a very distilled attempt by Mariah to in front of you shape a narrative of her life that she wants you to perceive as real. So it starts Mm. with her being engaged to billionaire James Packer, who also does not appear in this book. That time in her life is not covered. And she presents this narrative that like there's this random backup dancer who's rejoined her team with whom she falls in love by the end. And it's like, what am I supposed to do? Marry the billionaire or like follow my heart? And it's like this is all completely like shaped and invented by her. And then she ends up like he breaks up with her, the billionaire, and she sues him for an $50 million inconvenience (laughs) fee, which is iconic anyway. Um, but it's this attempt by her to use the medium of reality TV to shape her narrative. And it doesn't really work because instead people are also seeing kind of the messiness of the behind the scenes. Like she's not the Mm. poised, stylish diva. So she abandons that after one season and fires that manager. And now she's really reemerged as like 
this classic queen of Christmas. Like, you never have to see the messiness of her behind-the-scenes life. Nick Cannon, who, by the way, also is barely in this book, also not part of it, but it's like she gets to pick... I think she's still toying with how much of her life she wants to expose or make public as part of, like, this self-narrating process. When she talks about Nick Cannon, she talks about him being a perpetual teenager. And... (sighs) Yeah. How for her, that had a place and a time. And I think strangely, it's like they're both at this understanding of like, this could never be for life for either <laughs> of them. And I think what's interesting about her is she's self-aware enough to realize that there are men who pursue her because she's Mariah Carey. And then the reality sets in and it's never going to be good for either of them. And I I mentioned the Evelyn Hugo book earlier because that is something that repeats over and over. She's this sort of bombshell. And in both Mariah Carey's memoir and in that book, they cite the kind of famous quote, like um, men meet and go to bed with Norma Jean and then they wake up with, I'm not getting it right, but like they they go to bed with Marilyn and they wake up with Norma Jean, which is iconic because her hero is Marilyn Monroe. And obviously like she mentions early in the book that she is incredibly well-read, I think, as a person in ways that people don't expect, but she's also made a lifelong study of Marilyn Monroe's life and career and owns Marilyn Monroe's White Piano, which is important because the first chapter of Marilyn Marilyn Monroe's autobiography is like um, how I saved a white piano. And it was like the story of how her mother had a white piano that then was lost when her mother was put in an asylum. And years later, she ends up like finding it and buying it. And Mariah Carey then finds it and buys it. But it's sort of like, I think what she takes from Marilyn Monroe's life is like there's never a man who could be satisfied with both dualities of like what it meant to be mm. with both Norma Jean and Marilyn. And also Marilyn could never be satisfied with anyone who couldn't accept like who she was in the world and at home. And I think there's a like so I don't even know if like the perfect partner from Mariah Carey exists, but I think Brian's it's herself. Not, it's herself. It's like <laughs> You know, maybe she's just been falling in love with herself her whole life, or maybe that's like the healthiest move, but she's still with Brian Tanaka, that backup dancer. And I think that's also like fine because he kind of knows where he fits into the scene. Yes. And I think those boundaries are important. I think that's kind of like, you know, you can think of JLo. She married a backup dancer at one point. I think it's like, is there a clearer way to define a relationship than to say, I married my own backup dancer? <laughs> yes. I think her kids are the loves of her life, truly. Yes, yes. And I, I think it was really interesting, too. She talked about how alone she felt being pregnant with twins and how kind of traumatic that was on her body. And I think she genuinely got a great co-parent out of Nick Cannon because she loves his family and she loves his childlike spark. And I think for her, it's kind of the perfect scenario of like, you can see very recent photos of them all going to Disney and like, this is a great, maybe not the best outcome, but like, it's a great outcome because she didn't anticipate having children. And then it just made perfect sense for her at that time to have these twins who are so cute. They're adorable. I saw her in concert two years ago. I can't even like remember a time when I went to concerts. Like, wow, (laughs) those were the days. And of course she was like two hours late. Like that's fine. And blamed it on the venue, not explaining how long it was from her penthouse in New York to get to, um, the Oakdale. 
But regardless, she was like, I'm sorry, there was like a little situation. And then her kids come out on stage for Always Be My Baby. And they just sort of like run around while she sings. And there's pictures of them on this big screens. And it's like, okay, these she is so intensely in love with her kids. And they're adorable. Like they don't seem like stage kids who are like so performative. Like they're genuinely just like running around and like having fun. And, you know, she genuinely is like, wow, like they're crazy and they run the show and that's fine. And it's like it was very genuine and sweet where it's like, oh, I'm happy for you that this happened because you deserve this. Like this seems like the time when you are happiest is when they're like rolling around on the floor on stage while you're trying to sing a song. That's so cute. It was not everyone can pull that off. That's not Not everyone can. I think about the DJ who opened that show all the time because he was in a really tough (laughs) spot where like they clearly didn't tell him when she was actually going to show up. So they kept sending him out there with like and giving him fake updates where they were like coming on being like, she'll be here in seven minutes. He's like, "Okay, great. Like, she'll be here in seven minutes, everyone. And then he would play like 20 seconds of a song and then do the next 20 seconds of a different song. And then finally he was like, "Okay, find me on Instagram. Here's my handle. Bye. Like, I don't know where she is. And then we just sort of hung out for 45 minutes until she got there. That feels like a very different time. Like, I think music will be different when, you know, one to two years from now. And I think someone like Mariah Carey, it's like, in some ways, she's just getting started because like her legacy of Christmas, her legacy of her albums, it's like, she will do well in any economy. Like she's she like the will. circus in the 30s. Like she's recession proof. She is recession proof. And the thing is, like, she still has the goods. Like she was clearly singing live yeah. when I saw her. She was not singing to a backup track. And she was still hitting all the notes. Like she's still excellent. And I think still a good songwriter. And I think that will carry her through. Like, even if she's also interesting because in the book she says, like, I don't really walk around my house singing to myself. Like there are times hmm. and I don't sing for other people, like for fun at home. She has a a studio in her house and she's like, sometimes I'll go in there and sing by myself. Like if I'm trying to write a song or something, it's for me. But it's not something that like I just was watching the comment. I watched White Christmas with the Rosemary Clooney commentary on, which is why we miss this in streaming culture. Like you need the DVD for this. And she basically was like a difference (laughs) between Bing Crosby and I is if you went to Bing Crosby's house, he went up to get, he was like, I need to go grab something upstairs. I would hear him sing to himself going up the stairs. He sang all the time. She was like, I literally never sing unless I'm performing. She was like, I've sung more today recording this commentary than I have in months because I don't need to, like, it's not a thing I do for fun. So it's like interesting (laughs) to see like how Mariah Carey's like personhood will and will not remain linked to her ability to sing, I guess, as she ages. Because she might just be like, you know what? I just want to write songs. Although I do think hmm. performing is, like, pretty vital to who she is. But I don't so know. I would love to know. I don't know the answer to this. But I watch a lot of TikToks of people who are married to, like, NFL stars. Yeah, and I get those, too. it make you wonder. Like, it makes you wonder. So, And I know a lot of them are satirical. So you're not actually learning what their life is like. It does kind of give you pause to wonder, like, if you are a professional football player and you're still in your prime, is there any joy for you in tossing around a football to a friend? Yeah, I don't know. I wonder about that. I mean, I don't know. I, like I, I we're watched... speculating. <laughs> well, no, but I'm thinking like, so the only like sportsy thing that I've seen other than those TikToks is I did watch the Michael Jordan um documentary series and there's a point at which he gets injured 
and he has to sit out the rest of the season. And instead of sitting out, it's like he misses the game so much or he's so competitive. I'm not really sure which it is, but he goes back to UNC and is like basically playing with his old college team like for fun. He's like playing pickup games. And the coach is like, what the hell are you doing? Like I told you to chill out and like rehab. And he's like, it's part of it. Like it's all part of it. So I guess I'm just weighing, like, did he do that because he just took that much joy in playing basketball or was he just, like, super competitive and wanting to get back? Like, he's not playing basketball now is, I guess, the point. Like, he's playing golf and, like, doing whatever it is he does. I mean, so Kylie Jenner gets photographed for a living. That's her life. That's her job. She uses photographs of herself for her business and she has people take photographs of her. That That's really, like, a huge part of who she is as a person. But I was looking at her Instagram story, I think a day ago or so, and she did the challenge, like post a picture of, you know, different things. Oh, yeah. Just very clearly loves taking photos of herself and her children. Like, I I think they're an interesting example of that line is really blurry between they do it for business, but they also clearly are obsessed and almost fetishized having their own archive at all times. I think that's true. Like I'm when you say that, I think about Linda McCartney, who was a professional photographer when she met Paul, like they met because she was taking photos of him at some press conference. But then she amassed like an incredible private archive in her lifetime because Mm. she just loved taking photos of her own family. And like some of them are just like her children. So it's not like famous people per se. But, you know, like at the end of her life, like there are still now like exhibits of her photos because she just never stopped taking. It's not because she no longer needed to do it professionally that she then just stopped. It was like, oh, no, she just really enjoyed taking photos. Hmm. I think we've talked about this before, but it gets at that question of like, do you only do things that you're good at? Because there's such a value to also doing things not to be good at it. I don't know that Mariah would do that, though. I wonder. I mean, my dad just retired. He's a lawyer. And basically, the minute he retired, his firm was like, well, you come back part time and just like help out or hang out. And initially he wanted to entertain that because he had no idea what it would feel like to not go to work every day, to stop doing Mm. this thing. He literally has done six days a week my entire life. Um, And basically what I've learned over Christmas break is he was like, I will never return. He was like, why would I ever do that? And he like never wants to think about legal things like he's just done. It's like he flipped the switch off and he's fine with that. That's cool. So I guess he can. I guess it is possible. I don't know. Well, no. You know, as they say on TikTok, I guess we'll never know. I guess we'll never know. I mean, I feel like our (laughs) retirement plan is to become PIs. So, like, I'm ready to pursue that at any time. But, you know, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see kind of, like, what her the next couple of decades look like. Because I do think I'm trying to think of, like, a peer of hers who's a, a generation or two older like what what has their career looked like like patty labelle who she considers like her godmother or aretha franklin r.i.p or gladys knight Dionne warwick queen of twitter um you know like what they all tour you know basically they're still doing things but i think for mariah that wouldn't be enough she wants to be part of like the conversation i think touring would not be enough I, I do think there is something to the fact that, like, if you look at people who are giants in Motown, they still tour. Yeah. Like, it really is kind of staggering. Like, people who have literally toured for 40, 50 years or like, Frankie Valley still being on tour until, I think, not that long ago. Sorry, Frankie Valley is, like, still with us? <laughs> I'm, I'm not certain. I think but... you're right. I think you're right. Hold on. Now I have to Google this. Uh Uh-oh. My apologies to the Frankie Valley stands out there who are screaming at their phones. 
that I don't know this. Okay, wow, he's 86. Okay, he's still with us. But I think there are people, they're very active. They're like me. Why would I stop? It's like Ringo. It's like, does Ringo really need to tour with the All-Stars at this point? Did he ever? No, No, but he's like, I'm here for the hang. Like, will I be taking a nap break during the concert? Yes. Like, he just, I don't know, you've never been to one of these concerts, but he, like, leaves the stage. Like, when it's not time to play his songs, he's like, okay, I'll be back. And, like, another drummer literally comes out and drums along with the others as they play their, like, one-hit wonders. He's like, bye. I can picture us in, I'm going to call it an adult living and learning community someday. Interesting. Like, we still make a podcast and all of the residential staff saying like they think a podcast they're like the is. Mics, they're like the mics aren't even. They're plugged. not connected. They're not connected. So sad for <laughs> these two. Plugged. They're not plugged in. Um, now, Mary, should we tell people what we have cooking for next month? I feel like we should. Like, why don't you lay it on us? Yeah, so we're we're pretty excited. We're thinking of some things more for the spring that we'll reveal shortly um, that will really kind of connect in and I think enhance our understanding of Molly. But we kind of selfishly chose a book that's a little bit different for January called The Age of Phyllis. And it is actually a book of poems, which I did not know when we were talking about it, but I was able to flip through it. And it's a book about the woman that we understand as Phyllis Wheatley, but more about her whole life story as told through modern poem writing. So I'm very excited. I'm very excited for this. It should be very cool, very fun. You're reminding me that I need to order that book. So thank you for that. Um, Anytime. Wow. Yeah. So I'm very excited for all the things that we have planned. Um, This has been genuinely a fun episode to prepare for and i'm sure we'll be doing more watch alongs so we will get back to you all with more information about that as well we just want to say thank you so much it's so fun when we see emails with your names trickling in and that you signed up to be part of our patreon it's always so exciting when we get to see that in the inbox and it really is so cool i know there are a lot of podcasts where they read everyone's names but i also feel like on those podcasts they get most people's names wrong Mm. And as someone whose last name is said incorrectly a lot, like know that we thank you. We appreciate you. I do actually make a point. I look at every single email and I say like, thank you (laughs) as they come into our inbox. So we are so genuinely appreciative and we love this community. Uh, The last watch along we did was like scarring for me because we watched that (laughs) Courtney video, which I cannot speak about yet still. But it is so genuinely fun. And I love like the book recommendation channel on the Discord. Like I'm seeing a lot of good stuff there that I'm putting on my to read list and the pop culture hot takes and all these various things we have going there. So if you've not checked it out, please join us there. Honestly, Courtney is a wonder. And if you all want us to like, I don't know, do something with Courtney, I've been enjoying the Courtney content quite a bit. So, okay, but we were not, I was not told that the Challenger explosion would be covered in that, what I'll call a short film. And okay. But what I'm saying is like, I was not told (laughs) and you know, I'm still scarred by that. And I wasn't ready to be thinking about that at that particular time. So (sighs) you think they were ready? I mean, was, was the world ready to watch that on television? When every time I think about it, I just keep hearing the dance by Garth Brooks in my head because his music video has a clip of that. And I was like, Garth, no, please. Emotional terrorism, not today. Oh my God. 
So if anyone out there is working at the Smithsonian Airspace Museum and you would like to come on and talk about that incident and how I might think about it, please email us because I need some help. Thank you. And also just while we're saying this, I, you know, I didn't know if I was going to take this to the public space, but here we are. Uh Oh, the Smithsonian on December 7th, which is Pearl Harbor Day, posted the Pearl Harder poster that we referenced in our Molly episodes. And I'm just saying, like, if you did that or, you know, the person who did that. Thank you. We see you. We see you. I'm taking credit for that. I think you should. Why not? I mean, flex harder, pro harder. Who cares? <laughs> um, interesting. You should just claim victory for that. Way to be. Thank you. Yeah. So we're very excited for where this is going. If anyone ever wants to watch an episode of Mariah's World with me as a watch along, <laughs> I'm open to it. Please let us know. Um, <laughs> Allison, where can people find you with hot takes and further suggestions for other Patreon content? So you can see Cemetery's foliage and my cat at Allison Parks wow. on Instagram and on Twitter. And you can also find lots of different ways to reach us on our website. And we started using Linktree. So you can follow us on American Girls Podcast on Instagram and a Girls Pod on Twitter. Um, Mary, if people want to book their Mariah's World appointment with you on a day wow. that ends in Y, wow, where wow, should wow. they do that? Please, please DM me on Instagram at <laughs> Mimi Mahoney. You know, I'm very happy to be your second favorite Mimi in your life. Maybe third if you have a grandma <laughs> goes by Mimi. Um, and on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. Um, thanks again for supporting the show. We so appreciate you. We'll see you on our next episode. Yay. Go, 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 go.